1: The new farm bill provides $43 billion in subsidies at a time when crops are producing bumper profits. The president vetoes it, calling it loaded.
2: We could have had a bill that the president would have signed that would have contained significant reform of farm subsidies, and we could have seen a bigger increase in conservation funding. In general, it's just a failure of leadership, I think, all around.
1: The Farm Bill, what's in it for you? Also, are we alone? We soon may have answers searching for life on Mars.
3: We're looking for microbial life. We don't expect to find little things scurrying around Mars or anywhere in the solar system. What we're hoping to find, like in the dry valleys, is a simple microbial life that has evolved and survived for billions of years. Life on Mars, this week on Living on Earth. Stick
1: around.
4: Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm.
1: From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman and Steve Kerwood. Money might not grow on trees, but you'll find plenty in fields. The new $307 billion federal farm bill includes $43 billion in crop subsidies. This at a time when farmers are receiving record prices for what they grow. That's one reason President Bush vetoed the bill, but it's veto proof. It has overwhelming support in Congress. But the president isn't the only critic, and Daniel Imhoff details many of their complaints in his book, Food Fight A Citizen's Guide to a Food and Farm Bill. Daniel Imhoff joins me from a studio at KWMU in St. Louis. Dan, welcome. Thanks for having me. This is a monster of a bill.
5: Yeah. uh, It's more like a black hole. Uh, It's dealing with everything from nutrition to uh, what we grow and uh, how we manage it to conservation, even uh, racehorse breeding in Kentucky.
1: Well, you found plenty to criticize the bill in your book. And you joined the New York Times, which criticizes it. George Bush, when he vetoed it, he called it a bloated bill. Uh, The Secretary of Agriculture says it's reckless spending. Um, Overseas writers have said it's uh, outrageous. What's wrong with the farm bill?
5: I think what's obviously wrong to most people is that it's been really hijacked by huge agribusinesses. We're focusing on a very narrow range of crops, corn, cotton, wheat, rice, soybeans, sugar, milk, Much of these commodities are produced in these huge, huge industrial operations. And much of these commodities also aren't really directly eaten by people, but rather they're fed to cattle, they're made into ethanol, they're made into all kinds of food processing additives or refined flours and sugars and oils that are actually contributing to a nutritional crisis.
1: Well, the food stamps and other nutrition programs, domestic programs, do get the lion's share of the money, about 70 percent,
5: right? They do. And I, I really think it's time for us to ask the question whether or not we can really develop sound farm policy while we debate nutrition policy at the same time. So
1: you think we should have two bills, a farm bill and a food bill?
5: I think if we had two bills, there would be a lot less of the horse trading that goes on and perhaps a lot more time for reflection to see, you know, where are the public benefits in these programs? What are the goals that we have for agriculture moving forward? Well, you
1: mentioned horse trading. Some of the subsidies do go to racehorses in Kentucky. There are also, what, um, some money in there to prevent uh, puppies from being imported from uh, overseas.
5: You know, I have not heard about the puppies, but, you know, nothing surprised me. In order to get this bill done, you know, just a huge number of earmarks, pork projects are, are brought home. And you have to really ask the question, is it responsible to pass a bill about agriculture, which deals with racehorses?
1: Hmm. Well, this bill was toted by many as being reform. Are we getting our money's worth, you think?
5: No, no. I, I think we have a, a Congress asleep at the wheel. Um, I, if we really had a much broader vision for our food and agriculture system, we could really use the $307 billion um, to create something much better than we have right now. And you know, I think if you look back, you can't underestimate the amount of money that, of, of the agribusiness lobby that influenced and writes policy. So what does the veto mean
1: now, though?
5: I just think it's posturing. And it's really just a statement to appease um, certain constituents who want President Bush to take a really hard line on spending. Um, The administration had a lot of chances to come to the table. And if they were very serious about the changes that they were trying to recommend with eligibility requirements, spending caps, true reductions in the commodity title, we would have had them. I wonder,
1: it's six, 673 pages long. Do you think anybody reads the whole
5: thing? It's not only that long. It's constantly in flux. The important thing to remember about this bill is that this is just stage one. This is when the promises are made. And then every year for the next four to five years, as it's time to appropriate to either fund or not fund programs that have been promised, then further decisions are made and further legislation takes place. So even though you might be promised a certain amount of money for or, you know, farmer's markets expansion or organic research, there's almost no guarantee that you're going to get it in the long run unless the appropriators honor those promises and, and don't give them for something else. And history shows that normally those, those projects, those programs with the most public benefit, conservation, value-added processing, rural development get cut while the commodity supports stay in place or are even increased.
1: Well, Mr. Imhoff, thank you so very much.
5: I really appreciate your time. Daniel Imhoff's book is called
1: Food Fight, A Citizen's Guide to a Food and Farm Bill. Critics may find plenty of pork in the legislation, but many members of Congress are only too happy to bring home the bacon to their constituents, among them environmentalists, who are pleased with some of the provisions aimed at protecting the land. Living on Earth's Jeff Young went down on the farm for a closer look and put his ear to the ground.
6: Claggett Farm in Maryland lies just outside of Washington, D.C. It's a good example of how action inside the Beltway can change how farmers do business in the real world outside the Beltway. Farm manager Michael Heller's putting away a load of rye straw. More area farmers might do the same thanks to the extra money in the Farm Bill's conservation programs.
7: The rye is really great because it not only protects the soil over the winter months, but it sucks up any leftover nitrogen and binds it up in the plant. And then in the spring, we'll harvest it and use it to mulch our vegetables. So it'll rebuild the soil and protect the soil from erosion.
6: So it works really well for our farming system, but it also works for the bay. That's the Chesapeake Bay he's talking about. It's once rich stocks of fish, crabs, and oysters are imperiled by the suffocating effects of excessive nutrients. Heller runs the farm for the Chesapeake Bay Foundation as a working, profitable business that demonstrates best practices to keep nitrogen and phosphorus out of the rivers and streams that feed the bay.
7: When you add up all the little streams, I mean, this stream is barely two feet across, but it it runs pretty robustly, and you get a good rainstorm. And with the thousands of little streams like this, it has a tremendous impact. How much does agriculture contribute to those kinds of problems in the bay? In the bay region, about 40% of the nitrogen and about the same amount of the phosphorus
6: entering the bay is coming from agriculture. So with these conservation programs, you've got an opportunity to take a bite out of almost half of the uh, nutrient problems.
7: The beauty of agriculture is it's the cheapest place to reduce your nutrients. Uh, Wastewater treatment plants are much more expensive than paying farmers to control the nutrients on their land, and generally
6: it benefits the farms as well. Claggett Farm has buffer zones of grass and trees along stream sides to catch and filter out nutrient runoff. Heller also fences off the streams to keep cattle and their manure out of the water.
7: Hey, guys. as you walk through here, you'll see lots of clover coming up in the grass. The clover fixes nitrogen, so we don't have to spread nitrogen fertilizer on the hay here. That's the sort of thing that uh, the conservation programs in the Farm Bill will help farmers manage pastures really well because really good pasture is good for the bay. Why wouldn't a farmer just do this on his own? Most of these practices really cost something, and the problem with um, many of them is while there are long-term benefits, there are short-term, fairly substantial costs. But I think farmers um, are interested in doing things as well as they possibly can if the
6: funding support is there to help them, you know, do it. About half a million farmers, foresters and ranchers around the country applied for conservation programs since 2002, but were turned away because there wasn't enough money. The new bill adds about $4 billion to those programs. Chesapeake Bay Foundation President Will Baker says about $80 million a year will go to the six states in the Chesapeake Bay watershed.
8: We think this may be the most important vote ever to come out of Congress for the Chesapeake Bay in history. We think there's a possibility that we may be at a tipping point. We think it has the potential to dramatically change water quality in the bay over the next five years.
6: Great Lakes and Everglades restoration programs will also benefit. There's even some money to protect pollinator habitat at a time when declining honeybee populations can sure use some help. But that's not the whole picture. Some other conservation programs got the axe, like one called sod savers. It would have discouraged farmers from plowing up native prairie grasses, but farm state senators gutted that provision. And critics say the bill's subsidies to commodity crops like cotton, rice, and corn still promote environmentally harmful practices that can cancel out the benefit of the conservation programs. Sarah Hopper is an attorney with the Environmental Defense Fund. Basically, it's like having a foot on
2: the brake and a foot on the gas at the same time. We've got provisions in the commodity title that encourage certain behaviors, and then in the conservation title, we pay farmers to do the opposite thing.
6: Hopper used to work for the Senate Agriculture Committee, where she learned a few things about how the Farm Bill works. She says the bill makes it much easier for farmers to get crop insurance and disaster payments. And that makes it more likely that marginal lands will be put into production, often in sensitive areas more prone to drought. With prices very
2: high and then the assurance that Uncle Sam is going to be there to bail you out, it changes the math. And I think you're going to see people breaking out that new land. So you're, you're damaging the environment and you're going to increase the taxpayer burden in terms of bailing those Uh, those folks out when you have a loss.
6: So uh, on balance, who's right here, the president who wants to veto this bill or the Congress, which will almost certainly override his veto?
2: You know, that's a a hard question to answer, Jeff. I mean, the overall point, I think that people need to understand is that it's a very disappointing state of affairs that we've ended up here. We could have had a bill that the president would have signed, and we could have seen a bigger increase in conservation funding. In general, it's just a failure of leadership, I think,
6: all around. Hopper calls it a mixed bag at best. Conservation programs will grow, but for the most part, the farm bill means business as usual down on the farm. For Living on Earth, I'm Jeff Young in Prince George's County, Maryland.
1: Coming up, there are lies, damn lies, and statistics. We talk about damn statistics. Go with the flow on Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. The earthquake that struck central China killed tens of thousands of people, left millions homeless, and caused billions in destruction. Among the structures damaged are nearly 400 dams in Sichuan province. Soldiers have been patching cracks in the dam walls and engineers releasing reservoirs of water to prevent catastrophic collapse. Half the world's large dams are in China, and the country's banking on hydropower to fuel its energy future. There are plans to triple generating capacity in the next 12 years. But in light of the earthquake, one expert says China's likely to rethink those plans as opposition to hydropower dams grows. Andrew Merther is an assistant professor of political science at Washington University in St. Louis and author of the book China's Water Warriors, Citizen Action and Policy Change. I think the opposition to these hydropower projects will have a lot
9: more ammunition by simply invoking the Wenchuan earthquake. There are a number of groups in China who would prefer to see a network of smaller dams rather than one big one in a given locale. And that includes local officials. It includes environmental activists. It includes the people living in a given region uh, who are loath to relocate. So what we may see is a shift towards more of that type of hydropower generation. Why would a political scientist be interested in Chinese dams? Because dams are an insight into how the political system operates both in terms of territories, local governments, as well as various functional bureaucracies They tend to fight over the construction of these dams. So in order to get anything built, politics are at the center of it. And China, as you know, has been able to get by so far with its uh, impressive coal reserves. But because of pollution hindering economic development and because of competition with the United States and other countries, they really need to focus on uh, renewable sources of energy that can be produced
1: within China itself. Sichuan province, where there was this terrible earthquake, seems to be the focal point of a lot of the hydropower in China. Am I right? That's
9: right. Uh, One of the reasons has to do with a larger program of developing the western part of China, because it has been consistently lagging behind the coastal areas in terms of economic development. But the second has to do with the topography. Sichuan has a, uh, a basin in the middle, the, the Chengdu Plain, but it is surrounded by mountains. And one of the things that you need for hydropower is sudden drops, which that type of mountainous area has in abundance.
1: Mao Zedong figures in one of the three case studies in your book. He wants to swim in an area, and he's told he can't. That leads the leadership of China to want to build a dam there. Yeah, Mao was an avid swimmer,
9: Um, and maybe swimming is not the right word. He liked to float on his back a lot, and he would take swims at significant times to underscore a political message. Uh, In this case, it seems that he just wanted to go for a dip in the Min River when he was visiting Sichuan in the late 50s, and because the river itself was somewhat difficult to navigate— he was told finally that he was unable to do so. And then the bureaucrats turn around and say, well, we've got to let them, the chairman swim in the river, so let's build a dam. Well, the provincial boss was a uh, an ardent leftist, and so he felt that uh, Mao should have his little swimming reservoir. Um, But those plans largely were overtaken by events and uh, quietly and deliberately forgotten by those people who uh, were charged with carrying it out. This was a a forerunner of a dam that, within the space between February and August of two thousand and three, had gone from being a fait accompli, kept secret from the public. to an embarrassing reversal of policy as a result of bottom-up opposition. So that was the key, that it was a grassroots opposition in China? It's difficult to believe, but in China, there are anywhere up to 2 million non-governmental organizations. We in the West tend to look at China politically as a monolith. Well, it's anything but. When the opposition is successful... Uh, they're successful because they're able to frame the issue in a certain way. In the case of Dujiangyan in Sichuan, along the Min River, uh, they're successful because Dujiangyan is also the home of a more than 2,000 year old irrigation project that is still functioning, still in place, and is something that resonates with Chinese historical. Identity, So they were able to change the focus of debate from economic development to the preservation of cultural heritage.
1: Has the fear of earthquakes played a role in the opposition to dams in China?
9: Well, the fear is always there because uh, hydropower stations are best built in areas that are also earthquake-prone. And, of course, the water filling up the reservoir provides weight on the earth that contributes to instability. But these are things that were discussed for sure, um, but they were not really useful to the opposition as ammunition in the discourse over whether or not to build these
1: stations. Hydropower is really going to be one of the primary sources of energy for China of the future. What happens if the protest movement against these dams is successful and they don't have the energy to fuel their future?
9: Well, in the short to medium term, what that would mean is increased reliance on traditional sources of energy, Coal, for example, non-renewable fossil fuels, for example. And in the latter case, that would mean uh, competition with the United States, with the EU, with Japan, and the
1: increase of oil prices even more. Well, Professor Murtha, thank you very much. It's been my pleasure. Political scientist Andrew Murtha's book is China's Water Warriors, Citizen Action and Policy Change. Well, the World Bank used to finance many big dam projects, but citizen action and environmental concerns have changed that policy. Yet many developing nations still see hydropower as an untapped renewable source of clean energy. International Rivers monitors dam building around the world. Patrick McCulley is executive director of the Conservation Group, and he says there's no shortage of cash to fund big dam projects.
10: What's happened is that countries like Brazil, India, China, now they have a lot more of their own resources that they don't need international money so much. And one other really major factor in dam building around the world at the moment is that China actually is going around the world and writing checks for big dams without any types of environmental or social policies, and in many ways re- replacing the the role that the World Bank and other Western funders used to play.
1: Why would a country like China be interested in financing these kind of projects
10: partly it's promoting their own industries so in China's funding for example is a a big dam in Sudan that they've been building which is very controversial and their Chinese construction companies get all the contracts so that's an obvious reason for the Chinese to want to promote it but there's also geopolitical reasons so again use Sudan as the example China is very keen to have good relations with Sudan because they want to get Sudanese oil so building
1: the dam is a good way of cementing relationships It's ironic that worldwide there's this resurgence of dam building, and yet here in the United States there are a lot of river restoration projects and the removal of dams going back to, well, about 1999.
10: Yeah, for quite a few years now, we've had more dams being removed from uh, from the rivers of the U.S. than are being built. Something similar is happening in in various parts of Europe. In other parts of the world, there are a lot of dams being built. There is a very big global dam lobby. They have a lot of different reasons for promoting big dam projects. Obviously, there is a massive demand for electricity around the world and, and growing very fast. But we can see some of the projects being promoted at the moment are not very rational, let's say. And the great example of that is this Grand Inga project in the Congo in Central Africa where you have a a dam with a price tag of about $80 billion. Yeah, I understand. It would be the
1: largest dam in the world, much bigger than the Three Gorges Dam in China.
10: Yeah, by far more than twice as big as Three Gorges Dam and with a price tag several times as big. Being built in one of the most unstable and conflict-ridden and corrupt countries in in the world, the record of these big projects is that they spark off lots of corruption and can lead to conflict of various types.
1: What role, if any, does um, carbon offsets play in the construction of dams? That is... If they build a dam, they get credit towards polluting carbon dioxide in other places.
10: Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, There's a massive scam going on at the moment whereby hundreds of dams around the world have received or are applying for carbon credits under the, the UN's Clean Development Mechanism, which is part of the Kyoto Protocol. The whole idea of these carbon credits is that they're supposed to go to projects which wouldn't happen otherwise, so they're supposed to represent genuine emission reductions, and then polluters in industrialized countries that have ratified the Kyoto Protocol, they can use those those offsets so they don't have to reduce their own emissions. But these credits are all going to dams that are being built anyway. Most of them are completed by the time they actually get the credits, so there's no way that the credits are in any way making the dams happen. Basically, the consumers and taxpayers of Europe and Japan and the global climate are suffering because of this system. But Mr. McCauley, what's wrong with the dam? I
9: mean,
1: you know, they don't emit greenhouse gases. They do produce electric power. What's wrong with that?
10: Well, biggest problem usually is these big dam projects is that they displace huge numbers of people and cause great harm to their livelihoods. When you build these great mega-projects, their power lines go off to the cities and the mines and the industries, and they don't provide benefits to local communities. and. They do great harm to, to riverine ecosystems. But beyond that, the argument that they are, by their nature, climate-friendly is uh, is very simplistic. In fact, the big reservoirs in the tropics can have very large greenhouse gas emissions because basically flooded vegetation and soils, and that produces methane, and that's a very powerful greenhouse gas. So the big Amazonian reservoirs, for example, can have much higher global warming impact than fossil fuels, even than coal plants. I'm wondering, personally, you know,
1: you're up against some of the biggest corporations and countries in the world. Do you ever feel like that little Dutch boy with his finger in the dike, you know, trying to hold this thing back? <laughs>
10: yeah, sometimes it's uh, sometimes it's easy to feel a bit overwhelmed. But at the same time, we have a great global network of organizations that, that we work with. There's also in the rise of re- renewable energy, falling price of solar, the increasing visibility of wind power in many places. So the clean energy alternatives are much more viable than they used to be, which is a great thing
1: for us. Well, Mr. McCauley, thanks very much. Appreciate it. That's a pleasure. Patrick McCauley is executive director of the conservation group International Rivers. Shipping containers are those big steel boxes you find at ports, rail yards, and loaded on trucks. And usually, they're used for just that, shipping. But as Living on Earth's Ingrid Lobet reports, some entrepreneurs are transforming containers into home sweet home.
11: Forklifts move exhibits into place at the EcoBuild America show in Orange County, California. David Cross of SG Block stands at his exhibit, a steel box with one half converted into a living space.
12: What we're looking at here is a 40-foot cargo container, of 8 feet wide, it's nine and a half feet tall, and it's 40 feet long.
11: One side of the container has been removed and window and door openings have been cut into the sides and ends. As you see it, a tremendous amount
12: of material has been removed from it, it's been augmented, so now it's a structural steel building system that formerly was a cargo container.
11: Cross says buildings made this way can withstand 175-mile-per-hour winds, and the containers or blocks can be stacked, cut, and integrated by an architect into various styles. In fact, in several buildings S.G. Blocks has helped build, it's hard to discern the containers within.
12: We're the bones of it, but what the exterior and the interior looks like is is up to the architect and their clients.
11: What's funny these days, it seems to be a trend towards exposing the shipping container and utilizing that as an industrial look. That's Bill Hinchliffe of Conglobal Industries, his company partners with S.G. Blocks. TYPICALLY HOW A PROJECT WORKS IS A HOMEOWNER OR DEVELOPER HEARS ABOUT THE SHIPPING CONTAINERS AND THEN PUTS SG BLOCKS IN CONTACT WITH THEIR ARCHITECT FOR THE DESIGN. CON GLOBAL DOES THE WELDING AND CUSTOM CUTTING. THE CONTRACTOR ON SITE POURS A FOUNDATION. THEN THE CUSTOMIZED CONTAINERS ARE DELIVERED AND WELDED VIA PLATES TO THE FOUNDATION WALL. THIS WAY THE BONES OF MOST BUILDINGS CAN BE STACKED IN A DAY, MAKING WAY FOR ELECTRICIANS, PLUMBERS AND drywall TRADES. The finished product isn't always cheaper, but can be faster and stronger than a frame building. And Cross says the treated steel would hold up being underwater for several weeks, as many homes were after Hurricane Katrina.
12: Yes, you'd still have to take off your drywall and address that. But fundamentally, your framing system behind the package is still sound.
11: There's also the reuse aspect. The pieces removed from the box are melted down for new steel, so all aspects of the container get a new life. Cross says he's been getting a lot of calls.
12: This is... Uh... The old buddy guy musician, this is an overnight success, 20 years in the making.
11: SG Blocks isn't the only company to consider shipping containers for homes. There's a development called Container City in the U.K., and designer Jennifer Siegel, who specializes in sustainable prefabricated buildings, created a container house in Los Angeles. That also led to interest from around the country, but Siegel hit some resistance talking to local officials.
2: Most building departments around the country are not ready to accept the shipping container as a form or as a building element as of yet.
11: Still, she believes containers hold promise as long as people use them creatively, cutting windows, stacking them, putting on different finishes.
2: Then, yes, I think that there's an incredible demand for low to moderate income housing, office space, all kinds of ways in which the containers can be sewn into the fabric of the city.
11: Or wherever building speed, wind resistance, and the desire to reuse are priorities. For Living on Earth, I'm Ingrid Lobet in Anaheim, California.
1: And to see photos of homes and buildings made with shipping containers, be sure to visit our website, LOE.org. Well, each shipping container provides about 320 square feet of living space. Commentator Bonnie Auslander reckons that's more than enough room for her to live in but not her daughter.
13: My seven-year-old dreams big. I mean, three stories big. Oh, why can't we live in a house with stairs, she begs me? And it's not just stairs. She wants a dining room, a laundry room, a playroom, oh yeah, and a sun porch. What we have is a 900-square-foot ranch. You can put more people in a Mini Cooper than you can in our living room. Actually, my daughter says our car is a problem, too. She wants an SUV, not our beat-up old compact. My husband and I are patient. We explained to her that big houses and big cars are bad for the Earth. We describe greenhouse gases and tell her how all of us are responsible for the fate of the planet. And sometimes the message gets through. When she saw confused flowers blooming back in January, she knew that meant that most of them would not be returning for her spring birthday four months later. People should stop driving those big cars, she told us. They're selfish. They don't care if flowers are blooming when it's my birthday. But other times she forgets the importance of protecting the environment, especially when she gets a lift home in a Suburban or a Commander. Then she comes in demanding we buy a bigger car with a built-in DVD player and seats that go flat when you press the button. But being up high is the main appeal. And hey, I can relate. The time I rented an SUV because we needed it to move, I loved looking down on all the other drivers. Well on the few of them who were still driving compacts, that is. So I give up on the environmental angle with her and try a different approach. I use my arms to block off half our 18-by-20-foot living room and remind her, when we lived in Bangladesh when you were a baby, this is how big Nisha, your babysitter's, entire apartment was. And do you know who lived there with her? Her mother. Two people in that tiny space. So to her, our house is huge. This was a tough sell. It's hard to convince a child that the bigger your worldview is, the more you value small. Most recently, when my daughter complains, I just keep quiet and nod. Would getting what she thinks she wants really make her happy, I wonder? Probably not, say the recent studies on happiness. Turns out we're remarkably poor judges of what will make us content. We check out what we have and compare it to what the people we know have. If we have what they have, or more, then we're happy. At least for a little while. And it's not just kids who do the comparing thing. Dad hit home last week when a new neighbor came by. He had just moved into an enormous McMansion up the street, when he had helped design everything just the way he wanted it. He walked into our ranch and looked out the window to the back, where our kids were playing together on a swing set. Ooh, nice yard, he said wistfully. Ours is tiny.
1: Commentator Bonnie Auslander lives in Bethesda, Maryland, and writes on a 13-inch laptop. up, probing two profound questions. Is there life on Mars and charcoal or gas for the grill? Stay tuned to Living on Earth.
4: Support for the Environmental Health Desk at Living on Earth comes from the Cedar Tree Foundation. Support also comes from the Richard and Rhoda Goldman Fund for coverage of population and the environment. This is Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International.
1: It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Memorial Day marks the beginning of summer. Time to fire up the grill, kick back, and relax. But before you sink too deep into that chaise lounge, consider this profound philosophical question. Gas or charcoal? What's the eco-friendly way to go? Living on Earth's Bobby Bascom has the answer
0: hot
14: off the grill.
5: Woo! What are
14: you cooking? Chicken.
0: You might be wondering what to cook on your grill, but Tristam West from the Department of Energy's Oak Ridge National Laboratory has been working out what to cook with. He's decided on charcoal.
8: Essentially, charcoal is a renewable fuel. It's derived from wood, so the net emissions are, are considered
14: zero.
0: In life, trees absorb carbon dioxide. In death, they release it. Whether they rot in the forest or burn in your barbecue... So, according to West, when charcoal is burned, it's closing a carbon-neutral cycle.
8: It has the most carbon dioxide emissions when you're grilling, but if you look at the whole cycle, it has the least, absolutely. There can't be much debate on that point.
0: But the debate in Southern California, an area notorious for its air pollution, is not about carbon dioxide. It's about the particulate matter and pollutants that are released by burning charcoal, Sam Atwood of the California South Coast Air Quality District.
8: The propane fuel is just inherently much cleaner than burning with charcoal briquettes.
0: So you're saying that burning a fossil fuel is cleaner than burning charcoal, which is a wood derivative?
8: Yes. In this case, uh, because it is a, a gaseous fuel that burns with a much more complete combustion than a charcoal briquette, the amount of pollutants will be much, much smaller. When you think about, uh, let's say, burning a log in your fireplace, the pollution is so great that you can actually see visible emissions.
0: Atwood's especially worried about lighter fluid. The flammable liquid impatient people pour on charcoal to get it started. In 1990, Southern California required that makers of lighter fluid cut the air-polluting ingredients in their products by half. Sam Atwood says the results were significant.
8: We found that... Just the starter products alone were responsible for several tons per day of the so-called volatile organic compound emissions. Now that's equivalent to a pretty large oil refinery.
0: So burning lighter fluid causes air pollution. But the Department of Energy says the actual grilling isn't a big deal. It estimates that on the 4th of July, the busiest grilling day of the year, barbecues will only generate about 1% of the total carbon dioxide emissions in the U.S., and the DOE's Tristam West still sides with charcoal as a renewable resource.
8: About 90% of all the wood used for charcoal is all essentially wood waste from from lumberyards, so it's not as though we're going in and cutting down trees so we can grill hamburgers.
0: That's true if we're talking about those square black briquettes, which are made from bits of scrap wood and sawdust pressed together. However, 10% of Americans choose fancy hardwood lump charcoal, which is made from whole trees that have to be cut down. Serious grillers opt for mesquite charcoal. They say it makes the food taste better. Since 1993, sales of lump charcoal have increased nearly 600 percent.
8: I call the North American demand for charcoal a demand for a chic, grilling fuel.
0: That's Matthew Taylor, a professor of geography at the University of Denver. His research in the Sonoran Desert suggests that demand for mesquite charcoal is leading to deforestation. But paradoxically, there's no shortage of mesquite saplings.
8: If anybody has driven through southern Arizona, northern Mexico, you will notice a mesquite infestation. And that's a consequence of running cattle in the area. The cattle eat mesquite pods during dry times, and then they wander off, and the mesquite seeds are passed through their system, and you have a wonderful sprouting of new mesquite all over.
0: But those mesquite sprouts are no help. Taylor says they're often outside their native habitat and so won't grow normally.
8: So you get this little, tiny, multi-stemmed mesquite that looks very scrubby and shrubby-ish. That's not good for charcoal. You'd have to go and cut down hundreds of those, whereas you can cut down one large, old-growth mesquite. And some of those are several hundred years old. Um, There's definitely deforestation associated with
0: that. So what's a green griller to do? It's a simple question, but there's no easy answer. Propane burns cleanly, but it's non-renewable. Charcoal briquettes are renewable, but may pollute. Hardwood charcoal could cause deforestation, but it tastes great. Confused. I'm Bobby Bascom for Living on Earth.
6: Here's Big Daddy, he's about to have a fear.
5: Trying to get that charcoal lit Everybody's laughing and falling to their knees. Getting kind of hungry, calling
6: out, please. Just give me some.
1: You can hear our program anytime on our website or get a download for your MP3 player. The address is LOE.org. That's LOE.org. You can reach us at comments at LOE.org. Once again, comments at LOE.org. Our postal address is 20 Holland Street, Somerville, Massachusetts, 02144. And you can call our listener line at 800-218-9988. That's 800-218-9988. T-minus 10, 9. August fourth, two 2007. Seven, Cape six, Canaveral, Florida. 5. four. NASA's Phoenix mission to Mars start, is poised to begin.
8: Two, 1. 0 and lift-off of the Delta 2 rocket with Phoenix, a distant science outpost
12: seeking clues of the evolution at the polar region of Mars.
1: 421 million miles and 10 months later, the Phoenix Mars lander is scheduled to set down near the north pole of the red planet this week. We've been sending missions to Mars' surface for more than 30 years. Mars, on the other hand, has been visiting us for time immemorable. Not tiny green men, but rocks. You can find one in Sam Canavis' office at Tufts University. Professor Canavis keeps it in a small glass bottle labeled shergottite.
3: We do have a a little nugget from Mars, actually. Let me just see. Well, it's a piece of Mars.
1: Martian meteorite... Sample. Sample. Isn't
3: that incredible? So many years ago, uh, it was discovered that some of the meteorites that had been picked up in Antarctica were actually from a planet. It was a terrestrial planet, and there's a crust on the outside here. That's the fusion crust. So you know a meteorite because it comes through the atmosphere, and it it burns the outside of the meteorite. So they found in this meteorite little glass bubbles that had sealed who knows how long ago, and in those glass bubbles was gas, and the gas matched Mars' atmosphere exactly, can I touch it? Well, no, we try not to touch it. I
1: can't <laughs> touch it. Whoa! But this is about as close as Mars as I'm going to get. Actually, Mars was a lot closer than I thought. You can find it in a lab just down the hall from Canavis' office.
3: Three of my people that work here are not here. This is our Mars chamber. This is—we uh, use this to test some of the instruments and also do experiments on Mars soil at Mars conditions. So we inside here, we generate the atmosphere of Mars, at the pressure of Mars, and also the temperature that it is on Mars. So what we have is a mini Mars here.
1: It looks like an autoclave.
3: It's got a lot of you know, valves. Yeah, well, let me, let me see if it's still on here, if I could turn this. So that's, Right now, what it's doing is it's making it like Mars in there. We won't go all the way. It takes about half an hour to get everything just right.
1: But what's just right on Mars isn't just right for most living things on Earth. On the red planet, temperatures drop to minus 200 degrees Fahrenheit. The atmosphere, 95% carbon dioxide, is thin, and deadly UV rays bombard the surface. It's an extreme environment, which is why Professor Kunavas, who studies the planets, calls himself an extreme chemist. Why Mars? Why do you think to well, Mars?
3: Well, actually, Mars is one of the best places in the solar system that, that we could probably settle someday. I mean, there's not many planets in the solar system that are Earth-like. We want to know, is the soil like Earth's soil, for example? Did it ever have life? Did it support life? Could it support life? Could Could you plant things there and have them grow? For answers to these questions,
1: Canavis hopes to dig deep. Previous Mars landers have only scratched the surface of the red planet. But the Phoenix mission lander is equipped with a robotic arm that can drill into the frozen polar soil.
3: Some of us think that if there is life on Mars, it's probably very, very, could be very deep. I mean, we found life on Earth only recently very deep. And so we've been living here for a long time. And 20 years ago, we didn't believe there was life on Earth subterranean. And now it's been pretty well established by several groups that there are bacteria happily thriving underneath us and thousands of feet below. These organisms basically eat the sulfur in the rock and thrive. So those creatures would be happy on Mars in a subterranean area. Hence, you're going to dig under the surface. we're going to dig. So you scoop down about a half a meter. Well, We we start at the top slowly, digging down and see how far we go. Uh, We take samples along the way, and then hopefully we will find ice at some point. So there's water on Mars? Absolutely. Yeah, it's frozen. I mean, we have no doubt there's water on Mars. The question is, when was it liquid, and is it liquid any time now?
1: To find out, Canavis' lab developed a unique miniaturized experiment, a test in a teacup. It looks a little like a mini black monolith from 2001, A Space Odyssey.
3: All the sensors are mounted on the inside of the wall of the little cup, uh, this black little box. So the sample gets deposited in there? The sample gets dumped onto the uh, screen there. The little drawer is open at that point, and then the drawer closes and dumps the sample in there. This is a little chemistry laboratory. It is. It's basically a small little chemistry laboratory. It's very simple science. I mean, when I talk to elementary school kids, they understand what we're doing. We're measuring the acidity and how acid the soil is. We're, we're tasting the soil. How salty is the soil? And we want to know how nutrients are in there. Uh, we're asking, basically, you know, is this soil friendly? Is If an astronaut goes there someday, are they going to find dust that once it touches water or their skin, basically turns into something like sulfuric acid and, or Clorox bleach? Or is it like the soil out in your backyard that's friendly, at pH 7 that you can grow plants in.
1: What was the biggest challenge that you faced?
3: Our biggest challenge has been to make sure that the instruments operate under the conditions we'll find on Mars, to make sure they operate once or twice very reliably. And so, so what you see here, unlike here on Earth where you buy things and you want them to last a long time, this doesn't have to last long, but it has to work the first time well. And so it has to work after being vibrated, frozen down to minus 60, 70 degrees. And we, they, NASA does horrible things to this stuff. And so in the process of building this, it had to go on a lot of tests. And then it's tested, and tested, and tested, and at extreme conditions, and that's, that's hard. It's got uh, thrusters that turn on. Uh, in the last 30 seconds, and uh, it's very scary. The last seven minutes of this mission are the scariest. There's a, if you go on our website, there's a little clip NASA has put out there. It's called Seven Minutes of Terror. This is at the last seven minutes. It basically hits the atmosphere. It has to slow down from 12,000 miles an hour down to about five miles per hour before it, you know, it has to open up the parachute during that time. It has to uh, let itself go and then fire the rockets in the last 30 seconds and, and then come down on all three legs somewhere nice and easily, on its own. And seven minutes later, it's eight minutes later, it radios back to Earth. I'm here. We're looking for microbial life. We don't expect to find little things scurrying around Mars or anywhere in the solar system. What we're hoping to find, like in the dry valleys, is a simple microbial life that has evolved and survived for billions of years. Could you imagine...
1: I guess you have imagined. What happens if we actually find that?
3: Yeah, it's, it's an interesting question. I mean, it's, it's a philosophical question. Uh, for this, a lot of scientists, um, uh, I think we're pretty convinced that there's life out in the universe. Personally, my f- belief is that uh, life is an emergent property in the universe and that there's probably a lot of places where life has emerged. In some places, it has evolved maybe very little. In other places, it has evolved to area, maybe stages were similar to ours. So I've
1: got to ask you, Professor, would you go?
3: Would I go? Yeah. I, <laughs> well, you know, it's funny. I, it, I have a sixth grade notebook. I wrote in it. It was like, what do you want to do stuff? And I wrote I wanted to be an astronaut and go to Mars. But um, yeah, I would go if it was, re- you know, yeah. But it, it would be interesting to go there and actually be able to do science on the surface. But I don't think my wife and kids would appreciate my going necessarily right now. <laughs> Tufts University extreme
1: chemist Sam Canavis, whose experiments are aboard the Phoenix Mars mission lander. Well, scientists aren't the only ones fascinated with the red planet, musicians from Holtz to Ziggy Stardust have made music to honor the planet. Marty Quinn, a drummer and computer scientist, was inspired by the 2001 Mars Odyssey Orbiter mission and used data collected from its gamma-ray spectrometer and neutron data collector to create
14: this piece, simply called Mars. a gamma-ray spectrometer on the Mars Odyssey spacecraft. It had a big boom off the the spacecraft, and it was looking down at the planet. And those gamma rays are caused by cosmic rays hitting the planet's surface, bouncing around within the planet, and then some of them bounce out again. And because of what they hit in the planet's surface, the scientists can tell, oh, hey, there's water there. So the gamma-ray spectrometer became in particular became the melody and then the neutron data collector was collecting three kinds of neutrons that emanate from the surface also that give the scientists other information and us about the carbon dioxide ice that is on the surface at different seasons those were represented by three patterns of music one was a slow bass pluck one was a beautiful string pattern in the middle of a keyboard And then at the high register, we had a very fast piano. And the data controlled the volume of those patterns. So it's just like a person. You know, everybody has a certain sound to them as they walk or as they speak. So it's a very natural metaphor that I used in this case. ¶¶ The phoenix is landing at an area on Mars that is representative of my favorite music on Mars, which is the northern polar area. And I'm not surprised because it represents a, a place on Mars where there's a lot of variation from winter into summer, where the ice is is quite prominent during the winter, but then it quickly melts and exposes the ground and therefore exposes the water underneath. ¶¶ I'm a drummer at heart, and I'm a musician and composer at heart, so I want, I want the data to be expressive just like music is expressive. Musician
1: Marty Quinn composed this tune using data from the 2001 Mars Odyssey mission, supplied by John Keller from the Lunar and Planetary Lab at the University of Arizona. Our stories about Mars were produced with the help of Andy Gia and Jeff Turton. On the next, living on earth, Eco Elvis has entered the building.
10: Well, the earth needs your help baby. can't you see cause screwed up the land, air and
5: sea. If the flashy costume doesn't get him, the music will, and if the music doesn't get him, the the message and the words will get him. So it's kind of like a, you know, four or five tier punch. If I can't get him one way, I'll get him another.
12: Hey,
1: Eco Elvis, thank you very much. On the next, living on earth.
4: We leave you this week
1: in the middle of a lek. Leks are breeding grounds where certain species like these male greater prairie chickens perform display rituals and compete for the affections of females. Nature recordist Lang Elliott got up at the crack of dawn and set up his equipment at the Prairie Chicken Lek in the Nebraska National Forest to record the males strutting their stuff. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Ashley Ahern, Bobby Bascom, Eileen Balinski, Ingrid Lobet, Helen Palmer, Mitra Taj, and Jeff Young, with help from Jennifer Basler and Sarah Hawkins. Our interns are Annie Gia and Margaret Rossano. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Lirish-Dean composed our themes. You can find us at LOE.org. Steve Kerwood is our executive producer. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Thanks for listening.
4: PAX World, for tomorrow. On the web at paxworld.com.
14: PRI, Public Radio International.